All right, everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. Today, I am joined by Alan Kirshner, PhD, who is a biblical scholar, Christian author, and eschatologist. He's dedicated to proclaiming the good news of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's also the author of Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Return of Christ. He is the editor-in-chief of the forthcoming Biblical Prophecy Magazine and the host of an excellent podcast you all should subscribe to, The Biblical Prophecy Program. Uh, just uh, real quick, too, Alan is also the executive producer of the Seven Pre-Trib Problems documentary that uh, came out, uh, uh, what, a month and, and a half ago or something like that, two months ago. Um, we worked extremely closely during that film to formulate the arguments. We were, we were always on the phone trying to figure out how best to present this information and work through some issues. And uh, it was just, I just think Alan is a national treasure. He's been blogging for, I don't know how many years about this issue, just laser focused on this issue. And has really, as a result, put forth some of the best arguments uh, really on the internet now about the return of Christ. Alan, how's it going? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank, uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So before we we're probably obviously going to talk about the rapture and stuff today, but we are, it is November 5th as we record this. It's uh, 10 in the morning. Um, the election's going crazy and stuff like that. What, what's your initial take of what's going on in the, in the world as, as we see it? Uh, I think um, that, you know, at, we're, we're witnessing a, a Marxist takeover and I, and I, I don't. I, I say that unqualified because um, this Marxist left uh, very ruthless, and we have to identify them as such. Uh, and by definition, Marxism is atheistic at its core. And so, once they assert their power, they have the power. Uh, I really believe that it's it's more than just having power. It's actually the the, the true objects of their ruthlessness will ultimately be uh, believing Christians, uh, the church, uh, and of course, Israel. And so, again, we have to look at the enemy in terms of uh, more in, in, in a theological uh, sense and understand why are they Marxists and, and what are the implications for, uh, you know, believing Christians. And, uh, and, and I think it, we have to come to terms that uh, while, it's, while Marxism is asserting its power, uh, we, we, have to, we have to prepare that, you know, this could be the very generation that Christ comes back and that this could morph into something, something larger. It could morph into an antichrist regime as well. So we have to be, uh, we, we, we can't stick our heads in the, in the sand. We can't be Pollyanna, uh, Pollyannish about all of this. Uh, we are witnessing something very interesting before our uh, uh, our very eyes. Right. Well, here's a question too. I mean, I I take it. I mean, I I agree with you, and I see it as a very similar situation where it can go both ways. I think this can be just another uh, situation in which um, socialism takes over, and as a necessary result of that, has to kill a bunch of people because socialism or communism and Marxism can't exist with dissenting voices. It, it always inevitably ends with uh, mass graves and concentration or re-education camps. That's just how that goes and has gone in history. Um, but it, as you said, it could morph into, or it could be 
something much more uh, serious in terms of eschatological. It could morph into the Antichrist kingdom. I, I don't, I, I think, Alan, for me, I don't know, this is maybe a character flaw, but I'm like fatalist to a fault. Like, I'm like, if it's going, I'm like, well, okay, well, let's look on the bright side. If, if it goes that way, I can see a lot of benefit for my Christianity, one. Number one, I sort of detach it and emotionally a little bit from the sort of thinking political things are going to help or be a solution. And I really get into prayer as a solution for everything and get into just very, you know, I can see that that happening in my heart if I, if things don't go my way, you know, it's kind of like if you've ever been really into like a football or, or a sports team and when they finally lose at the end of the season, you're like, okay, now I can start concentrating on real stuff, you know? So I can see that happening too. Um, you know, what's interesting about the eschatological nature or possible eschatological nature of things is that I've been paying a lot of attention to Twitter lately and uh, I'm subscribed to a lot of pre-tribbers. Um, and there is a real sense that they believe more than I've ever seen. And you've been following uh, pre-tribulationalism more than uh, just about anybody in terms of what they're, what they're saying. Um, but it really does seem like they are saying that it is definitely here. It's at, it's at the highest pitch I've ever seen it um, of the, the rapture is any second now. I mean, it's like it's, it should have already happened, basically. Um, what are you seeing with that? Yeah, I'm seeing the, the same thing the, as far as the chatter out there. Um, I'm also, though, seeing some, uh, some cautiousness, some hedging, if you will, from some circles of, well, you know, they're not maybe not explicit about their, but they're thinking, well, maybe, maybe we will be here for some difficult time before the rapture. Right. And for me, that's encouraging because they're not completely blind to the fact that uh, there could be some severe persecution for the church. Uh, on the other hand, there, there are, I mean, since our documentary came out, I've received some emails uh, from preachers who have been persuaded by this documentary. And so that's super encouraging. Mm -hmm. And they've, they, they, they heard some things in the documentary they've never heard before and makes sense. And they, they would consider themselves pre-wrath. So that, that's encouraging. But, uh, but you're right. As far as uh, a lot of the chatter out there is a lot of them really believe that, uh, well, because of these difficult tumultuous times they, that the rapture is going to happen at any moment. And uh, unfortunately uh, I think they're going to be very disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and there, it's going a lot of different ways. Um, you're seeing, you're seeing definitely people. I think at the at bottom, what people are seeing is that they're seeing what kind of what we talked about just a minute ago. That that the logical outgrowth of this is persecution for Christians. I mean, it just seems like the system is built for that. No matter what happens uh, politically, Christians persecution is coming, and I think people get the sense of that. What I'm seeing a lot of is like direct, outspoken like saying the words that, hey, look, it looks like persecution is coming. So therefore, you know, the rapture has to be any second, right? I mean, and I think that that certainly does not representative of all pre-tribulationalists. Some, as you say, are sort of hedging on the other end. Um, but the that group that believes that concept, that core concept, that the, the, the function of the rapture is to keep us out of persecution is in for a bit of a... Uh, a shock. And I, I've kind of come to the point where I feel like, you know, instead of being 
I don't know, upset of it or anything like that, or, you know, wishing it could be different. I kind of see it as the, the, what has to happen, you know, um, right. they have to go through that, uh, in order to come out the other side and, and with a more biblical view that, that, that the church has always known that the, uh, church will face the antichrist before the rapture. That's just, that's what the Bible says. That's what Christianity has always believed. And I think that, um, you know, it's going to take a bit of a, a shock for them to come to that. And I think it's just a necessary thing that's going to happen. So, um, but I am seeing, as you say, some hedging, and we'll talk about that as we get into some of the stuff about the, uh, the film. Um, so, um, I guess before we get started, should we just talk broadly about what you're seeing on your end? I know you, you have an interesting, uh, uh, kind of vantage point for this because a lot of people that, that uh, get interested in pre-wrath probably go through you emailing you questions about this thing or that thing. Are you, have you been seeing anything interesting since the uh, film came out? Well, one indication is that when people write me, uh, they see, they see the film and then maybe they've heard of the pre-wrath and this, this is the first like formal presentation of pre-wrath they've received. And what's encouraging is that uh, a lot of the email I'm receiving are basically then they're, they're trying to reformulate their presuppositions. And so they're asking me certain questions. Okay, then how, you know, what is, how does pre-wrath understand this over here or this over here? Right. Uh, and for me, that tells me that they have a, a, a spirit of learning, a teachable spirit. They want to know. They, they, they basically agree with the premises of uh, a pre-wrath, but now they want to try to understand how it fits in with maybe some belief they had about this or that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, one, one type of email I haven't received yet is uh, an actual review of the, of the documentary from some of these pre-trib teachers that we have actually engaged with. Right. Um, I, I guess I'm a little disappointed by that from an academic point of view, because typically when you write a book, even if you, you know, you disagree with it, you, you, I mean, I read reviews of books all the time and a lot of people who do reviews of books will either do reviews of books from a perspective they disagree with or they agree with. And so I'm surprised that there haven't been, as, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, maybe uh, I'm mistaken on this, uh, I missed something out there, but I haven't seen any reviews from any noted pre-trib teachers out there. And mm -hmm. I think that's actually a mistake by them because, you know, they, you, you want to interact, you want to review these things. Um, and, you know, a lot of their so-called followers of their ministries or their writings, when they see that, uh, that, that might put in their mind that, well, don't, don't they have an answer to pre-wrath? Don't they right. want to engage the other perspective? Uh, so, and I, and I generally, I, I'm really interested how, you know, our arguments in this documentary, how, how do they come across to these, what are the responses to some of the, uh, the pre-trib teachers exactly. and I, I have not received that which is i i find that quite odd especially given that some of these teachers pre-tribulational teachers that we engaged in uh consider themselves academics so this is just right. kind of the academic thing you do you you write up a, a review of it so well it's interesting you you put it like that because that kind of leads into my first uh question i wanted to kind of go down the line and talk about the different so-called problems in the film and with the first one, the precursor problem, there's there's something in there that's sort of emblematic of the whole problem and speaks to what you just said. In the precursor problem, which is the idea that the um, there in the Bible there are explicit precursors to the day of the Lord, that is 
Uh, for notably, there's, there's four that I mentioned. There's several in the Bible, but there's four that the Bible just says these things will happen before the day of the Lord, such as the celestial disturbance sign, which, of course, is antithetical to the pre-trib position that there are no events that occur before the day of the Lord, and it's a very big problem for pre-tribulationalists. But what the point I'm trying to make here is that there are so few pre-tribulationalists that have engaged with that idea. And I think that we see this a lot, is that they are hesitant to bring up out of nowhere the pre-wrath uh, concept and argue with it. It's not in their, um, in their benefit to, to, to do that. The, the only ones that have, and this is what I wanted to say, pre-tribulationalism with regard to pre-wrath, I mentioned that uh, a lot of the challenges to pre-tribulationalism are essentially as a result of the pre-wrath uh, arguments, but it's sort of, um, the way it happens is interesting. They only do it when they're forced to almost. <laughs> and because of that, there's so few, that, and they, they become people like Jack Hibbs and, and maybe like Mark Hitchcock, or the very few that have really actually engaged with what are basically, it's not about pre-wrath. These are the fundamental problems of pre-tribulationalism that they just don't bring up or ever talk about or ever write about or have a single paper on. And the only right. time that they are forced to talk about it is when pre-wrath is like, yeah, but what are you going to do with this? So it's pre-tribulationalism has become this sort of gatekeeper world where there's these four or five guys that actually talk about the actual issues. And when they do, it exposes them so badly. So for example, the fifth seal martyr problem that we talk about in the, in the revelation problem in which people like, um, uh, who is it that takes the, is it Bill Salas that takes the fifth seal and puts it before the day of the Lord? Um, which is just like, what? I mean, that exposes them to say, to, to force them to do something totally crazy, but it shows that they have no real solution for this. But but try to find a commentary where anybody deals with the fundamental problem of the fifth seal martyrs in the, from a pre-tribulational perspective in the first place. So really, right. we're dealing with, as you say, these four or five guys that we need them to talk about. But why are they going to talk about it unless there's some kind of groundswell and they're forced to do it? Right. And and you brought up Salus. And of course, his problem is is a step uh, back or it just removes the the his problem one step further. And that is, what do you do then if you're going to locate a gap between the uh the beginning of the seventh week of daniel and be, be, uh, between the rapture which uh in his view i think he could i think he even says it could even be years uh between the rapture and the beginning of the the beginning of the seventh week of daniel uh his his main problem is within how do you deal with the scripture that teaches this idea of the rapture occurring on the very same day that the day of the lord's wrath begins mm -hmm. uh so and and this is this is one thing I'm I'm, I'm very happy that we uh, we did for the documentary is showing how they're adapting they're reconfiguring the traditional pre-trib framework in response to these pre-wrath objections. Of course, they don't work, but you can you can see that they're trying to uh, adapt to these uh, pretty uh, devastating critiques from the pre-wrath camp. Right. I think it's the I think it's showing people the nature of their adaptations that really is the power of the film. Because when you see that they've recognized the problem and what they've tried to do to answer it, it just rings as completely false. And there's a lot of explanatory power in just seeing that. So with the precursor problem, as you mentioned, the gap uh, theory, I, I, it's so surprising to see so few people even have a solution to that and how silly that they are and how fundamental of a problem that is. Um, 
But let's just move on to the uh, all of a discourse, which is Matthew 24. Um, in the film, I, uh, you know, we kind of focused on the what I have sort of termed in my head the fallout of their position that the rapture in Matthew 24 verses you know 29 through 31 is speaking of some event at the end of the 70th week, most often Armageddon or uh, some some event like that. Which causes a great deal of problems with the uh, with the various parables after after verse thirty six, and uh, the solutions to those things are uh, difficult. Have you? F Again, that was a difficult one too because we have just a few scholars that have interacted with it, and and I, I point out, um, you know, Craig Blazing and uh, and um, uh, John Hart in the film and there's really not in terms of papers out there very many others that have done so but yet it's such a fundamental problem and you can suss that out in the various uh, commentators from people like your average uh you know john MacArthur or something like that that they're they're demonstrating to you that this is a problem and they're saying hey we don't really have a solution for this again such a fundamental problem but no real answers and it just doesn't seem the kind of thing that you would see um, if your position was true. So basically, just any overall thoughts on the Olivet Discourse problem, the nature of, of that, I suppose. Uh, sure. I think uh, uh, there's one major point that I'm, I'm really happy that we brought into the documentary. And this is this idea that the, the parables in the Olivet Discourse are inconsistent with pre-tribulational theology, because pre-tribulational theology believes that, according to the, the parables, you know, you have uh, everyone's going to be going on with their everyday business, and then bam, you know, the God's wrath occurs. Uh, but that doesn't make any sense because pre-tribulationists also believe that the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments will be happening before that period of time. It's like that doesn't make any sense. But God is going to be pummeling God, the, the, the world, and somehow we're—so how, how can the world just go on with their everyday business and— during the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and and be oblivious that oh this is god's wrath uh so mm. this is a major contradiction in pre-tribulational theology of 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 the olive discourse so for example uh the, the the line that says people will be marrying and given in marriage right up until the day and in their in their view that day has to be armageddon which is just absolutely insane that uh, they would be marrying and given in marriage and relatively unaware in context up until the day of armageddon now i, I think on that point it's important to point out um that pre-wrath has a little bit of an explain uh, explaining to do there as well because what we what our position is is that the marrying and given in marriage must therefore be uh, during the Great Tribulation, at the very least, right? Um, so mm -hmm. this, so I think it's important to explain to people. Obviously, right. the, the difference between the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath is obviously quite different. Our view is that the, during the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is persecuting Christians. I like to explain to people that the persecution of Christians by the Antichrist is almost like a you know, it's like other persecutions in history. Like, imagine a, a socialist utopia was proposed in the world, like in Stalin's whatever or whatever. They, they said, hey, this great new Marxist thing is going to happen. Everybody's going to have a, some bread and chicken in every pot, and it's going to be great. And so while they're sort of building and promising this utopia, 
On the underground, they're killing all the people who won't agree or are fundamentally opposed to the utopia and putting them on trains right. and sending them other places. In other words, there can be marrying and giving in marriage on that upper level where people are happy to embrace the system and love the, and worship the Antichrist and do all the things that they're supposed to do. They are marrying and giving in marriage. I think that we see that line of, uh, of, of persecution that comes after the abomination so much uh, that's from the Christian's perspective. Yes, we're running, and we need to not stay, grab our cloaks or whatever. We need to run. Uh, but on the above ground, who's who's doing that? You know, there 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 are plenty of people. In fact, the great majority of the world will be the ones, um, you know, killing us. You know. Yeah, and that that's that, that's Jesus and and Paul are consistent on that point. Of course, I believe that Paul is drawing from the Olive Discourse because Paul says that. The world is, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, the world is going to be saying peace and safety. And then what? Sudden destruction is co comes upon them. Peace exactly. and safety is obviously is talking about the world, right? They're going mm -hmm. to be given a marriage and so forth. Uh, and for, for believers, of course, it's not peace and safety. They're going to be persecuted. Uh, but for, for the world, yeah, it's peace and safety, of course, albeit it's, it's, uh, uh, it's a short-term peace and safety for them. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, okay, uh, well, let's move on a little bit to the Second Thessalonians problem. And Alan, we we had a lot of talk about this. Uh, we talked, we kind of settled in. I mean, a lot of this has to do with the the things that the Bible is saying. Hey, there are these things that must occur before the day of the Lord. Second Thessalonians two is just so explicit that there are two things, namely the apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness that occur before the day of the Lord. And I, I like to say that. Um, uh, that pre-trib theories are like snowflakes and no two are alike with second Thessalonians two. And I read a lot of commentaries on second Thessalonians two, and they were just all over the board. Um, any thoughts on that? And while you uh, talk, I'm going to go, uh, expel my cat from this room because she is, uh, yelling a lot. Sure. Uh, another issue that I'm, uh, I'm very happy that we put into the documentary was, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's a certain grammatical construction. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you have the adverb, the, the proton, right, first. And then you have the, uh, this conditional statement, aeon may, that's unless. Uh, so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 3, you have, yeah, let no one deceive you in any way for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Proton, first. And the, man, and the lawless, lawless one is revealed, the, the one destined for destruction. Now, the only other two times, when you look at the grammar here, the only other two times that this, is, this grammatical construction is mentioned in the New Testament is John 7, 51 and Mark 3, 27. And when you read those two verses, I'll just read one of them. For example, John 7, 51 says, Our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first, proton, hears from him and learns what he is doing, does he? So, in other words, uh, before the event of condemnation, two events have to happen first, hearing from the accused and then learning what he is doing. So the two events do not happen during the condemnation <laughs> as the flawed preterm Greek analysis would have it. Rather, they occur before the verdict of condemnation. And then you have Mark 3... 27 people can read about that Let's talk about the strong man who enters into the house uh to to plunder the property of course the he has right. to enter into the house first so these two instances are 
the well, there's a, a parallel passage to Mark three twenty seven, but for all pra practical purposes, these two passages um, are the only instances in the New Testament that have the exact same construction uh, as Second Thessalonians chapter two three. This is one of the strongest arguments uh, to 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 demonstrate that before. The day of the Lord begins. Two events have to happen before that, uh, before the day of the Lord begins. Right. And okay, so you had mentioned this, and so when we were trying to marshal arguments uh, that that proton is or uh, is is what it is. What it it's funny that we even had to do this. I mean, your your expertise in Greek was able to find the that that, that in fact the entire construction going beyond a word study for proton, you know, you're doing, you're finding the, the right construction and so two other places. It's an excellent argument that needs to be dealt with. Um, and it's interesting that we even have to do this because it just is on its face what it is. Proton means first. The construction means that these things must happen first. Everybody should know that. The only reason that they're saying that it doesn't. And here's another thing. So in that section when we talked about proton there are as far as i can tell basically three arguments that pre-trib uh people will make at this point um one is that they will pretend they'll just act like proton isn't there they'll just 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 act as if it's just not there and oddly and, and talk as if paul had not mentioned the rapture and it's actually a very popular way to to do it to essentially just just uh not talk about it um, the second way is to kind of, they, they think they can get around it with the apostasy argument, which we'll talk about in a minute, but it's just a ridiculous argument that uh, is very easy to refute. And then the third argument is sort of agreeing that proton means proton, and you get your, I feel like your more respectable guys, Walvert and MacArthur will say, yeah, proton means proton, but then they're in this huge problem uh, when now they've got to somehow try to explain why there are events before the day of the Lord, and they do that by not doing it. They just pretend that they just right. don't comment on any of that in their commentaries. Right. All that to say that, that it is astounding to me. And this is one of the things, like you said, I wish people would comment on it. I think that we have them so good on this point. It is so rock solid. Explain, we explained every possible out for them in this situation. They have to now take all those arguments and, and now give an explanation. It, the ball is in their court, and I guarantee you what's going to happen is that they're going to just pretend something we said there we didn't say. You know, they're going to, like, deal with two of the arguments but not three or something like that. But I feel like, especially you bringing in that last sort of arm beh tied behind your back thing, like, okay, let's say proton doesn't mean first, but now the entire context means Eon May, you know, proton, it has to mean first. So it's done, you know. Right. Yep. It's a conditional statement. It's, it's explicit. And, and I don't like to bring in a lot of – I, I don't like to prove major theological positions by Greek grammar or lexical studies. I think they they should narrow down interpretations, but there are instances in which grammar and lexical analysis actually pinpoints the meaning. And this is a great example in which grammar shows what the actual meaning of, of, of a text is uh, indicating. Right. Um. I think uh, let's just talk briefly hit on the apostasy argument. I feel like the apostasy argument is one of your uh, sort of uh, fortes. Um, where do you feel like that? Just off the top of your head, where do you feel like that argument is in the scholarly world? I was reading John Hart's book is sort of an, I don't know if an anthology is the right word, but different um, 
different authors. There's a guy from Dallas that wrote about the apostasy thing. And he took this, do you know who I'm talking about? What's his, what his name uh, is? Hitchcock? No, it wasn't Hitchcock. Um, um, I think he was from Dallas. In any case, he, he, his position on it was that, um, uh, that he basically took a non-position. He, he, he wrote it saying, hey, I really like this a lot. Let's think about this and explain it. But then I'm not sure if it's true or not. You know, took a very wishy-washy position on it um, because I feel like that they, at the top levels, don't want to endorse that because they do know that it is extremely problematic. Uh, uh, Holtberg said, uh, you know, it's a very difficult, if not impossible, case to make in the film, and I just couldn't agree more. Uh, any any thoughts on where that is? Yeah, I mean, this this is reflected in my. Um my debate with Thomas Ice in the cross-examination, <clears throat> anyone can see that on YouTube, where Thomas Ice, I, I pressed him, I said, where, where does the Greek term apostasia, uh, this, it's a noun, not a verb, and by the way, the, a lot of pre-tribs, they want to say, well, the verb means a, can mean a physical departure. Yeah, we're not talking about a verb, this, that's the cognate fallacy, we're talking about the noun, the noun uh, in, in Greek, never ever in, in Koine Greek, four four five hundred year chunk of, of, of history, never means a physical departure. All it means a like a, a spiritual or political departure. And I and I pressed Thomas Ice on that in my cross examination, and he had to admit. You could you could listen to it in the cross examination. He says, "Yeah, I, I asked him, can you can you produce a single document in which this term, this noun, ever means a physical departure?" And he admitted, no, I, I, I can't produce it uh, in, in the debate. So uh, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to bring this into the, in, into the documentary, because a lot of pre-tribs, they just want to make this apostasia, uh, the, you know, the rapture. And it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous argument, really. But sometimes, sometimes the most, the, 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 the really bad arguments are sadly the most effective out there. I've watched, you know, I've watched a lot of guys make this case and it's, it's sort of this little sleight of hand thing that they do. And, and, and I did it in that debate too, especially the more sort of pseudo intellectual types that are right. He's not pseudo, he's actual intellectual and he's a really smart guy. But the point is that those that are trying to present themselves as, you know, scholarly will, will want to have something besides, the, they know that it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that in the Bible. It doesn't mean that anywhere. It just is wrong. And so they sort of try to blind people with science by quickly saying, but the root of histamine can mean, can mean this or whatever, which is just, uh, go ahead and, and talk. You mentioned when Thomas Ice kind of threw that out very tentatively in the bait. It's like, histamine, uh, you know, can mean uh, that, uh, which, as, as you say, is, is a root fallacy. Yeah, if that, that's a root fallacy. As, uh, and, and when you start talking about the verb form, that's, that's the cognate fallacy. They, they, they have to skirt around the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that is, but the noun, this, the actual word here, the noun, where in Greek literature, Koine Greek literature, does it ever mean a, a physical departure? It just simply does not. Uh, we, we determine meaning, meanings of words by usage. They want to determine meanings by cognate fallacies or, or maybe a... a or, or, or by, by, the, uh, by the root, or sometimes they want to determine meaning by what it meant 800 years later or 500 years later. No, what did it mean for Paul? And, and you know, where else in New Testament and extra-biblical literature 
uh, how was it used? I mean, that, that's just that's actually biblical interpretation interpretation one hundred and one. That's how you do lexical analysis. Is how how has it meant? Uh, you know, how how has it been used in other contexts and instances? And you develop what's called a semantic range, and then you and then you uh, look at your particular context and and you ask yourself, well, what makes best sense here? Right. And it just, I know for people listening, thinking this is about some technical thing. And I suppose it, this is what happens when you're trying to deal with a bad argument that you sort of end up having to go into all this technical stuff to prove it's wrong. But right. I mean, just a face value reading of this, Paul's talking about an apostasy before the rapture. He says, Hey guys, you know that there's apostasy and this thing where the antichrist sits in the temple and declares himself to be God. That stuff happens before the rapture. You guys should know this. And then of course, Jesus says the exact same thing. Hey, there, you know, in his, his all of a discourse, he's saying that there's an apostasy of falling away way of Christians and a man uh, declaring himself to be God. We're referencing the abomination of desolation before the day of the Lord, the celestial disturbance sign in verse 30 and 31. So it's like, or 29. So, so I guess it's just so obvious that you don't have to be a scholar to know this. You just have to be a reader of the Bible. That's that knows <laughs> what's being said in context, but we get into the weeds and saying all these tense forms and stuff to deal with the fact that at base level, the pre-trippers don't want the uh, Antichrist to be there before the rapture. Um, so, or I'm saying that right. Yep. Any, anyway, so uh, moving on to the revelation problem here, we talked about a lot of different things. Um, already sort of touched on the fifth seal martyr problem, the fact that there are these uh, martyrs crying out, how long before you judge? Um, there, there are people well within what the pre-trippers would say is the day of the Lord, uh, but before the sixth seal. In, a, in other words, there are lots of evidence that the wrath of God has not started by the sixth seal. Uh, we go into the fifth seal martyrs. I think one of the more um, interesting things with the revelation problem was, um, I don't know, I, I feel like people had not heard that argument before about uh, the fifth seal martyrs, but there's a lot going on there because just in context, it goes on to talk about, and this is one of the things I found when doing the research, and you probably have already written about this extensively, about the people when they see the celestial disturbance sign in Revelation 6, they see the sign that Joel tells us will herald the day of the Lord, will say that the day of the Lord is about to begin. They hide themselves in the rocks and they say, hey, the wrath of God has come. I mean, it's so absolutely obvious that the wrath of God is now about to occur. It's so perfect. It lines up with every single piece of this, this sign in the whole Bible. It's this perfect symphony of rightness. And then here's the people in the rocks uh, saying, oh no, the wrath of God is coming, which with even that concept of them hiding the rocks lines up with Isaiah, who in his discussion about the day of the Lord is all about these, he mentioned several times, the wicked hiding themselves in the rocks. It's just this perfect thing. And I just don't feel that anybody's ever even, or a lot of pre-trippers have never even heard these arguments before. Anything that jumps out at you with Revelation? Yeah, they have to get around, because I, the, the sixth seal is drawing from, uh, of course, Isaiah, but also I think it's drawing from Joel 2, 29 to 30, where in that passage it explicitly says, before the day of the Lord. It doesn't say, well, these celestial disturbances, this particular cluster of events is going to happen during or after the day of the Lord, but before the day of the Lord. And really, from what I've seen from pre-tribulational interpreters, what they have to do is just simply, at the end of the day, just as they, they, they're forced to really say, well, you know, the, the prophecy in Joel 2.30, 29 to 30, that's not the same event as the sixth seal. Right? That, that's really the argument. It's just 
this more of an assertion, I, I, I believe. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to, <laughs> when you compare Joel 230 to 31, uh, with the sixth seal, and of course with Matthew 24, it's, it's incredibly dif difficult to get around that, especially since everything in Revelation, the seals have been leading up to the sixth seal uh, that will announce the day of the Lord. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And like I said, and then also you have all this context surrounding that. You have people saying the wrath of God has come, you know, which is the perfect thing. I mean, and then you have, of course, the ceiling that happens after that. And then you have the multitude showing up in heaven after that, which is, of course, there uh, don't, you know, tell the angels saying, hey, don't start any of this wrath yet until everybody's, you know, sealed right. or, or raptured. You've got this multitude right. appearing in heaven. Which, you know, it was so interesting to, to see in this uh, film about the concept of the tribulation saints, which I, as a pre-tribber back in the day, I used to just sort of take for granted that there was some sort of argument uh, to be made about why these people in the book of Revelation or in Matthew 24, why they should be tribulation saints and not uh, just regular people in the church. You know, Christians appear in the book of Revelation a whole lot. You know, they're, they're all through... They're obviously in uh, the Olivet Discourse uh, being persecuted by the Antichrist. And they're obviously Christians. They're followers of Christ, you know, explicitly. And then the pre-trib argument is that, no, don't pay attention to the, them. They're just tri uh, tribulation saints. And honestly, the only argument for that concept of tribulation saints is that, well, we believe that there are no Christians uh, being persecuted by the Antichrist. So let's call these guys something else. It's just a very right. base, non-scholarly argument that has become sort of this, um, this, goliath of a thing that is just empty right and and, and uh, one point is they now all pre-tribulationists would agree that the bride is the they would say it's the church right so uh the bride of christ but it's interesting that the if the bride is the is the church well then what do they do with and i haven't seen an answer for this uh, in revelation 19 18 and 19 it actually identifies the saints in the book of Revelation actually says, uh, uh, or it's, uh, identifies the, the saints with the bride. And it also says then the, the bride was actually persecuted by the uh, Babylon the Great. But yet at the same time, pre-tribulationists will claim that the bride was raptured before the 70th week of Daniel. Well, that doesn't, again, that doesn't make any sense with what you see in John identifying the bride with the saints and being persecuted by uh, Babylon the Great. Right, or, and a or, good point that you brought up in the film is, um, let's say you just wanted to take that and say, okay, well, maybe pre you know, these tribulation saints got uh, left behind, and yes, they're being persecuted by Mystery Babylon and the Antichrist and all this other stuff, and then under the pre-trib, you know, that's during the wrath of God. So they've got, in other words, you've got to answer for why are these in the pre-trib model, why these people are in the wrath of God. If you believe that the entire 70th week or whatever is the wrath of God. And your point in the film was you can't have it both ways because if you want to make that whole seven year period, the wrath of God, then what are these people doing in the wrath of God? We're told explicitly right. that the, the, the church will not be there. So you've got to now answer another theological question of how did these tribulation saints, are they a part of the church or is the church uh, exempt from the wrath of God, which is it? And de define your sort of terms there. Right. Right. And of course their, their, their major problem sometimes is such an obvious problem that I forget to address it. And that is where's the rapture in the Olive Disco or um, in the book of Re where's the pre-trib rapture in the book of revelation. Uh, of course there, there are a lot of 
uh, their interpreters will make the desperate attempt to try to, to claim it's Revelation 4.1 when John is called up to heaven. Obviously, that doesn't work because now you're moving away from a grammatical, historical, literal in, in, interpretation. You're getting into all the spiritualizing stuff that they're against. So exactly. That just kills me that because on one hand you got in Revelation seven where exactly it should be right after the sixth yeah. seal, right after everybody right. says, Hey, the wrath of God is about to come. Let's go ahead and seal people and get, get them out of the wrath of God. And all of a sudden this great multitude, no one can number from every tribe, nation, and tongue that, that's so great that no one could possibly count. And it appears in heaven. They say they have resurrected these? bodies. <laughs> and that's right. clearly the resurrected saints, the rapture. It's a clear picture. And yet they call them, they call them not the That's church. Not, that can't be the rapture, right? That can't be the rapture. <laughs> yet, but no, John being called up to heaven, you know, because he hears a trumpet sound, that's the rapture. Right. Or, and then, of course, they have sort of this uh, this uh, spiritualized uh, version of the raptured saints, which they, the, the elders, what is it, the, the, the 12 elders or whatever it 24 is. Elders, 24 uh, elders. 24 elders. That's around the throne. Which, again, is a complete spiritualization of, of this. I mean, we can make a right. case of who the 24 elders are. I mean, Michael Heiser would make the case it's the, uh, uh, the divine council. Other people have made cases of whatever, apostles or something like that. But right. whatever they are, to say, to, to, to de deny the great multitude appearing in heaven from every tribe, nation, and tongue is not the church, but these right. 24 elders are the church? I mean, what yeah. kind of hermeneutic have it, they abandoned at that point? Yeah, if the, if the church is in heaven at this time, this wonderful, great event, the resurrection event, all this, why do you need a group representing the church? Why can't there be the <laughs> right. actual description of the church itself? <laughs> is it, it, yeah, it, when it, you just, got one, you know, you've got, yes. you've got this one over here you could have, but no. Right. Um, and, and, then, and then, again, just to follow that up, the the problem again with that problem just problem after problem whenever you have error you, you've got this this you've got no problem with john numbering people at any other time but all of a sudden the tribulation saints which just necessarily is a small group of people right the people that become in the preacher kind of concept is a small group of people that were on earth in whatever year the rapture happened that became a christian with this narrow way after the rapture it's got to be a number that you could number Right. You know, not like not right. like John's like, oh, well, that number, you just can't count that one when he's got no problem right. counting uh, however million millions of people on the east or, you know, he's got no problem with millions and millions of people in other places. And all of a sudden, that's a good point. That's actually a good point. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so let's move on to eminence. Uh, this is another one. You've got a book coming out pretty soon on eminence. When's that going to come out? Yeah, the, the, the book on, uh, actually, it's a series of books responding more toward uh, eminence or pre-tribulationism. The first volume is actually not per se eminence. That's the second volume, and the third volume is going to be more on the proof text. But this first volume is actually on the two presuppositions that allows or that, that uh, uh, is, is the framework in which eminence hinges on for pre-tribulationists. So, uh, Lord willing, the this this book, it's a, a part of a series. The, the, the debut first volume here is going to be out at the beginning of the year. Uh, I'm finalizing the title on it right now. Uh, that's why I'm not mentioning the title, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, um, it's going to be a, a critique. I can give you the, the uh, subtitle. It'll be a, it's a, uh, examining the foundations of pre-tribulation rapture theology. And it's, it's two parts. Uh, the first part is 
uh, responding to traditional pre-tribulationists who believe that God doesn't work with Israel and the church at the same time. And the second part of the book is responding to which all pre-tribulationists believe, and that is that the rapture is disconnected from the second coming. So I, I personally believe that those are the two fundamental presuppositions of pre-tribulation theology and all other interpretations uh, are developed from those presuppositions. You know, what I've just uh, kind of derail a little bit, that second point, the rapture is disconnected from the second coming, which is, I've always thought of that as kind of a semantic kind of thing, you know, calling something the second coming. It's it's weird that kind of, that this has become, I, I read this a lot in the comments of the, the film, is that this sort of fallback position of pre-tribbers is to sort of, if they just want to put one line and run away, it's that, oh, you don't know that the rapture is actually two stages, you know, and, and what they, I think, mean a lot of times is that there's a rapture and then there is Armageddon, you know, and mm-hmm. now you, what you mean by you're arguing for it, that, that there is only one, and that's sort of a, co- a conversation about the parousia, parousia that um, basically the, the rapture and everything involved really in the, the events that follow are part of the parousia. There's only one coming of Christ, which is the parousia, which includes and starts with the rapture, but then has a gr- good number of events, which culminates obviously with the uh, the kingdom and everything else. But what they mean in that, what they think is an argument against pre-wrath is saying, Oh, don't you know, there's two comings of Christ. You know, and you know, they're not thinking it through to, to be like, no, what, if you mean that there is, and I'm getting this from a lot of commentaries uh, that, that say this as sort of a, a, an answer to the idea, but pre-wrath agrees. I think they're only arguing with post-tribulationalists at that point who do kind of put the rapture and Armageddon at the same kind of moment. Uh, different post-tribulationalists have different views on that, but the point is mm-hmm. there, that's only an argument against post-tribulationalism, which pre-wrath agrees. Yeah. You got the rapture over here and then you got Armageddon over there. There's, if you want to call it two comings in that regard, sure. If you want, I mean, well, it's a right. semantic thing, but um but yeah, it's so amazing how much pre-tribulational argumentation for pre-tribulationalism is really just an argument against post-tribulationalism. Right. Yep. Um, okay. So eminence. Now, I used a lot of your arguments for eminence uh, in the film, but one of the things that struck me about this during the research of, of it was the idea that so much of what where they build their sort of doctrine around the idea that you need to be good because you need to be watchful and, and be good because Jesus is returning. The idea that your sanctification is, is not maybe fully, but certainly primarily, or maybe, I don't know, whatever, based on the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. So be good. And there's all these verses in the Bible that do seem to suggest, Hey, let's do good works because Jesus is returning. Um, but really to see that in light of what it actually is, which is a discussion of eternal life. Those verses aren't about being surprised by anything. They're all looking forward to, you know, in other words, the, the great hope of Christians. What, what's that word I'm looking for? The uh, blessed hope. The blessed hope, which they, in their minds, actually believe is about the rapture, about escaping persecution. 
if that's true, how did any Christian that has died before this, all the millions and millions of Christians that have died, what was their blessed hope? I guess they don't have a blessed hope. For The blessed hope is only for the people in the last generation that right. get to escape a little bit of persecution. For them, right. they have a blessed hope. All these other, whatever, in other words, whatever your blessed hope is, it needs to be a blessed hope for Paul, too, who was beheaded by Nero. Right. It needs to be a blessed hope for the guy that was burned alive for, for printing the Bible. It needs to be a blessed hope for all those guys. The blessed hope is eternal life, and the Bible makes it so clear. And it just, to me, I was just astounded to realize how badly they had interpreted this whole machine around eminence. Yeah, and Alan Holtberg in the documentary makes a great point. He says something along the lines of, wow, if you're— if your faith in the blessed hope is that you're not going to be persecuted or there's certain events that have to happen before Jesus returns and that will diminish your faith, uh, he says something along the lines of, well, you, you probably don't have very good faith. Uh, our faith is built on the certainty, of, the certainty of Christ coming back. That's why I like to you know, say that the Bible doesn't teach the imminence our faith is built not on the imminence of Christ's uh, return, but on the certainty of Christ's return. That's what our faith should be uh, built on. Yeah, and it's it's it actually, in realizing that, it shows one of the sort of deficiencies of pre-tribulationalism. One of the things that they get to, they really miss out on. Because if you if you understand that correctly, that the blessed hope is about your eternal life, that you really have you're going to live forever. I mean, that, that you have this, and, and because of that great gift, you should live your life as if you have already died. You know, that death is not a problem for you. Persecution is, you know, and you get this freedom of anything that can happen because you're dwelling on that eternal life. But if, if you understand that as your blessed hope is that I get to escape persecution before the rapture, you miss out on one of the most fundamental uh, sort of motivations for the Christian life. And it just shows, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's worse than just being, um, you know, a bad interpretation. It, it, it's missing out on, a, uh, on yeah. Paul's entire point in First Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your sting? Therefore, uh, you, you know, he's got this whole theology around, well, in light of that, and if, if that just means the rapture, then it's just kind of meaningless. Right. By pre-tribulational definition, then Peter, throughout his whole life, could not have faith. Because his Lord prophesied that he would live a long life and that he would be, at the end of that long life, he would be, uh, you know, crucified. Hmm. And so knowing that, Peter, Peter living all those years just was so discouraged, I guess. He just could not have that faith because Jesus himself, his Lord, diminished his blessed hope. Of course, that's absurd. But that's what, hmm. that's how pre-tribs understand the the blessed hope is. It's a good point. I should have concluded that in there. <laughs> um, okay. Do it in your book. You can write <laughs> yeah. it in your <laughs> uh, Okay. So the church in Israel problem, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on this in the film. And I know that, that it was one of these areas that I probably should have expanded on more. I know it's something that you feel strongly about. I guess one of the questions I, I would like to ask here, uh, explain to, uh, to us why, this is such a fundamental thing that needs to be dealt with. The idea that uh, God will not work with church and the church and Israel at the same time. And as a result of that, if, 
you know, the whole uh, understanding the whole 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy, there were 69 weeks, we're in this uh, large gap of time, that's something more than 2000 years at this point. Uh, and when that final week, uh, seven years starts, it will be about Israel, therefore the church must be gone before that week begins is sort of the the fundamental argument for that. And I feel like there are a lot of there's a lot of nuance here because it it's sort of like dispensationalism is being argued as well. Um, and, and I want to say something before we quite get on that. I feel like the Plymouth Brethren and and Darby and those guys, and correct me if I'm wrong, when they were dealing and sort of formulating the pre-tribulational position, it was kind of an outgrowth of an apologetic argument for dispensationalism. They were arguing really against the, the sort of the, the, the prevailing Catholic doctrine and stuff at the time that it was, you know, this Augustinian idea of, of it should be spiritualized. There really is no future millennium and, you know, all this stuff that they were, I think, rightly arguing for the fact that there is a future for Israel. But then this sort of odd turn happened as a sort of a supplemental argument for dispensationalism became the pre-trib rapture, which is sort of added onto it. And then it's, that's sort of the thing that really took off. Well, anyway, there's a lot going on there. What do you, what do you got? So the, where, where does this idea of the tr God doesn't work with the church in Israel at the same time? It really, yeah, it comes from, uh, the classical or traditional dispensationalism starting back with Darby, but also with Schofield and Ryrie. And it's this idea that, uh, and, and Walford actually uh, admits that, he actually says that the this belief is more, it's not so much uh, es eschatology, it's ecclesiastical, uh, which is why I call it the ecclesiastical presupposition in my forthcoming book. And it's this idea that their, their fundamental idea is that, well, if there's an Old Testament prophecy, if an Old Testament prophecy, uh, such as, for example, their foundational proof text in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, well, it says that, this, that the prophecy is made to Israel. Uh, and then what they do is, that, well, if it, made, if it was made from Israel, then the, the leap they make is, therefore, if it's made for Israel, then the church cannot not just not be involved, but the church must not even be on earth at that time. And this is their presupposition. Uh, because, yeah, and, and I agree that the, the 70 weeks prophecy, it was made to Israel. It was about Israel. But it doesn't exclude other groups of people, such as the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be on earth during the 70th week of Daniel, that pre-tribs uh, admit. Uh, so that's an inconsistency. Uh, but they, they go a step further and say, well, then the, if it's made to Israel, therefore the church cannot even exist on earth uh, at that same time. Now, that's fallacious because in my book and what, you, what the documentary actually uh, we, we brought in is this idea that, well, there's, there's other pro Old Testament prophecies that were made to Israel about Israel, but they were actually fulfilled during the time of the church. And, and so that's, that's, a, and that's an inconsistency with with their fundamental belief. Uh, but maybe you want to mention a couple of those prophecies that we brought in the documentary or? Well, sure. I mean, there are lots of things that we could go into to, to prove it wrong, but I, I, I'm interested in the sort of the, the overarching narrative here. I feel like this idea that the church, it, it has no real proof texts, you know, that this idea that, oh, the church can't be there when uh, the 70 weeks happens, because we know, for example, that 
just because a thing was uh, prophesied to Israel doesn't mean it can't apply to the church or else we wouldn't have a new covenant because uh, Jeremiah 31 prophesies a new covenant for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You know, no church is mentioned there, but every conservative or pretty much any Christian agrees that the new covenant was uh, for Gentiles as well. So the, the, but I feel like that this whole idea that the church can't be there is, is in a way kind of the only real argument for pre-tribulationalism. Because if you, what, one of the things I'm finding arguing with pre-tribbers a little bit is that no pre-tribber has any concept of the most fundamental question here, which is why do you believe that the day of the Lord is the entire seven-year period? I, the, the most fundamental problem with pre-tribulationalism is that they put the, well, maybe one of them, is that they've made the entire 70th week of Daniel the wrath of God. And it's like, where are you getting that? That's if you could, that's the whole problem. What, what is your, and really it kind of comes down to this idea of this, this church in Israel problem, because if they can make the rapture before that, then they have a a reason to explain why the entire seven year period is the wrath of God, because the rapture just happened. And therefore they know admittedly that the rapture, that the wrath of God happens the day after the rapture. So now right. they've got a reason to believe that because without it, they, they've never been taught. That just frustrates me to no end. The most fundamental thing in pre-tribulationalism, why is the entire seven-year period the wrath of God? Oh, nobody's ever taught me that. I have no, I have no concept for why that is. Uh, but right. anyway. What, one other trajectory uh, from pre-tribulationists, they'll, they'll argue also that the, well, because the church did not exist during the first 16 weeks, therefore the church cannot exist during the 70th week or at least on earth. Uh, and of course, that's a non sequitur. Well, the church, yeah, of course the church didn't exist during the first 69 weeks, uh, but the church exists right now, <laughs> you know? So, so when it begins, the church can be here. So it's a, it's a non sequitur. It's a, it's a logical fallacy. Uh, and, and to get to your point about, you know, again, why, the, uh, why they believe that the seventh week of Daniel is the day of the Lord's wrath, because Traditionally, pre-tribulationists have believed that when the rapture occurs, then immediately on that same day, the day of the Lord's wrath begins. So, so they, since they believe that the rapture occurs, be, that the, 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 the church has to be removed from the earth to heaven before the 70th week of Daniel begins, therefore they uh, infer that that same day, then the that when the seventh week of Daniel begins, then of course they would say that must be the day of the Lord beginning as well. You know, I was thinking about that the other day. It's like pre-tribulationalists don't really know it, but they, they've constructed for themselves the most busy day in the world. You've got the Antichrist making a covenant. That's a bit, that's just by itself is a busy day. Then you got the rapture happening on that same day. And then you got the wrath of God happening on that same day. I mean, that is a busy day, but you know, would, you wouldn't think of it uh, that big of a deal if pre-tribbers just didn't routinely abandon it. I mean, I can't tell you how many pre-tribbers are, I mean, Halloween was supposed to be the rapture. That was bigger than I'd seen in a while. The, the, the recent Halloween was mm. like definitely the rapture because certain, you know, fell on a Jewish holiday and there were certain full moons the and blue moon. Yeah. Or the, yeah so anyway, yeah. um, okay, let's move on to the final one. And then I'll get just a brief couple questions. The, the, the early church problem. This is one where I, out of the whole thing that I was doing here I, in the research pro- part, part of it, this is the place where I was the most convinced that pre-tribbers were uh, actively being dishonest. And that goes to the highest levels of academia and these papers that they were writing and everything else. And it may be that they're just in such a bubble that they don't see the obvious lie here. 
But what I'm trying to say is that uh, the early church, uh, there was no concept of the early church believing that there was a pre-tribulational rapture. Every, as you say in the film, every single early church father who wrote on this issue about the nature of the, the rapture and the Antichrist believed that the rapture would happen after the midpoint, after the Antichrist began his tribulation on believers. That's what the early church believed, period, full stop, everybody knows it. But the average pre-tribber has in their mind, oh, no, that's not true. I thought that they found all kinds of stuff in the in the early documents that showed that the early church was pre-tribulational. They had vague notions of the shepherd of Hermes and all these things that, that Bibliotheca Sacra and these other journals have helped perpetuate. You know, you read those journal articles and those titles are like proof of pre-tribulationalism in the early church. Just like, what? And then you read. And what they're trying to do is say that the early church believed in an imminent rapture, that the rapture could happen at any moment, because yeah. they use a, a, a phrase like, we need to watch for the rapture or something like that, which of course doesn't mean imminence, but they're, they're with a straight face telling people that if a guy says watch for the rapture, it means imminence, despite the fact that they don't quote the rest of the, the article or, or, or quote, quotation from right. the early church father, who clearly doesn't believe that the rapture is imminent because he's saying watch for all these mm -hmm. signs, including the Antichrist <laughs> sitting in a temple. And yet they tell people that the, the early church was pre-tribulational. It drove me crazy in this research. Yeah, I thought we brought in, uh, and you you uh, made the decision to bring in the conflagration theory, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if you want to mention a couple things one on thing that. that you, you, uh, one thing I meant to put in the film, but it just didn't end up working out, is something you really helped me out with. There was one in the, I kind of was going off a, a paper there that so, sort of was the most recent paper that pre-tribulationalists have wrote on uh, the early church and trying to assert that there's pre-tribulationalism in the early church, which they utterly failed at. But one of the quotes he brought in there was John Calvin. And when I was doing the research, I kind of had gotten past the point of... Uh, uh, of doing the research. And John Calvin was the one quote that I didn't have a problem for. I uh, didn't have it. It wasn't obvious because it really did sound like John Calvin believed in imminence. It was the, it was the only quote out of those 30 quotes that actually seemed to suggest that John Calvin believed in imminent rapture. And I asked you about it. And what did, what did you say? Well, he was a historicist. He actually believed that the, he was experiencing the Antichrist persecution, of course, through the Catholic Church. So he certainly didn't believe that the rapture occurred before the Antichrist. He believed it would occur after the Antichrist. He's just interpreted, as all historicists do, that the Antichrist is more of an embodiment of government or the Catholic Church or something along those lines. But he certainly didn't believe in, in uh, imminence in the larger picture. He believe that these signs were already fulfilled, that is mainly that the church was actually experiencing the Antichrist. So pre-wrath actually agrees with John Calvin that the church is going to <laughs> encounter the Antichrist. It's just that we interpret the Antichrist differently. Right. Pre-wrath agrees that it, exactly that the, the rapture will in fact be imminent. Uh, after the Antichrist begins his persecution, we have no idea when the rapture will happen. It can happen at any moment after the Antichrist begins his persecution after the midpoint, right. which is what uh, in that section um, the pre-tribulational scholars admit. They call it imminent intertribulationalism, which is what they essentially, the early church was pre-wrath. I mean, for all intents and purposes, that's what the early church believed. And yes, some, some people in the early church believed that the Antichrist was on earth persecuting people, although very rare. I couldn't find very many instances of that. I mean, there was sort of some theories, especially in the pseudepigrapho stuff, but... Um, but it, it, it's yeah, what we don't know, what, or what we do know for sure, 
uh, is that there are no early church writers who actually stated or believed that the that the uh, the rapture would occur before the Antichrist arrives on the scene. Mm -hmm. We know that for a fact. There are no uh, early church uh, statements as far as that is concerned. In fact, just the contrary, they all believe. And in fact, I, I, I typically say that of all the early church writers, all of them who actually wrote on the relationship between the Antichrist and the and the church, they all believe that the church would face the Antichrist. And I think if, if it's such a crucial point, because as a pre-tribulationalist, I needed to believe that my position was somehow historical. And, and, and the, these, these, these papers, these Bibliotheca Sacra and, and Liberty University and all this stuff, they, they gave me what I thought I needed. I didn't know at the time enough to be like, hey, they didn't actually believe imminence, and you're telling me imminence is pre-tribulational, but the guys who actually know say, oh, no, no, they weren't pre-tribulational, and, uh, and, and they won't admit it, but of course, it doesn't mean imminence either. Anyway, um, I think if people actually, if pre-tribbers actually knew the fact that really, I know that they think this is a thing that, that, that detractors just say, but really, there is no evidence of the pre-tribulational rapture before the early 1800s. And they think, oh, people say that, but they, you know, I used to believe that that was some kind of unfair attack. But now, no, that's really, really true. You're believing something that is brand new, a doctrine that is, uh, you know, and I think it would help to, it's kind of like, I feel like in the political thing, you know, if somebody could actually know some of the truths that are hidden from them because they watch different news networks or different feeds that things would right. change. But um yeah. Okay, so the final kind of couple questions here I've got for you is first, I get this question a lot of times, Alan, about what is the, what's the reason to think correctly about the return of Christ? What are the, the benefits and what are the dangers of believing wrongly? I heard a really, uh, as you're talking, I'm going to bring up this uh, statement from uh, this guy here. Go ahead and, and try to answer that. I'm going to bring something up. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's we're obeying our, our Lord. Uh, in Matthew 24, verse 25, it says, Remember, I have told you this ahead of time. Uh, some of the most severe warnings in the New Testament uh, from Christ are in the context of in times. I mean, some people say, well, you know, it's not that important of, uh, of a teaching. And I say, if it's not that important of a teaching, then Jesus was disingenuous by giving us these warnings. That is the only conclusion. You, you are admitting that Jesus is disingenuous. By, uh, by giving us these severe warnings. And one of these severe warnings is Revelation 14. The most graphic passage of hell in the Bible is Revelation 14. And it's in the context of a warning against the saints of God not to take the mark. Because if you take that mark, uh, you will suffer perdition forever. So that's just one of the main reasons, or I think there's a lot more reasons why we need to uh, uh, to, to, to study this topic, but we, we have to be prepared because very difficult times are coming and we have to get our spiritual house in order today, not when it starts to, to, uh, to happen. Right. On that point, I, I totally agree for sure. As, I mean, I feel like the, the idea of really taking into account Jesus's preaching about persecution, you come out with, I mean, he, which he pre preached about quite a bit, 
had a lot to say about how the Christian acts and should respond to persecution. And you can sum it up like this, leap for joy. Uh, basically, to, to, to joyfully accept persecution because Jesus has a plan for it. And I think that that teaching is, is helpful to the Christian um, because it does, again, it, it, it frees them up for such great things and great work. It also, um, it, I feel it, so, it so, so empowers the Christian life to put in the rearview mirror in your life your, your torturous death, you know, accept it as a possible given and, and, and understanding how you might deal with that in, the, in that mm. moment and then say, okay, I've, I've died to that. I've already accepted that, the worst case scenario. Now let's live for Christ and, and, and come what may. You know, there's a lot of power in living like that. Right. And we can take these applications, right? And we can apply it to our own day. Let's say that this is not the generation that Jesus returns. Well, we'll be able to live in the light of how, how we should live in the light of our, the, 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 the coming persecution by a Marxist regime. Right, exactly, and and I feel like that's the persecutions of the past, where they didn't know that it was wasn't the end times, and in fact, it believed that they were. I'm sure that that concept was used uh, by the Lord to mm -hmm. do great works in the midst of the concentration camps or what have you. And, and to your first point about the Olivet Discourse, that hit me so hard in this film and doing the research for it, because Jesus says, I mean, he he talks about the signs uh, that we should watch for, and then spends the majority of the time telling people. Watch, therefore, because you don't know the day or the hour. And watch, therefore. I mean, he says watch, therefore, explicitly three times, but all those parables are more or less about the, 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 the concept of please watch for these signs. It's a command that I'm giving you to watch for them. In context, they're watching for what? The abomination of desolation. Watch for that. When you see that, flee. That's what he's talking about. Not when you see some, you know, and, and because of that, I guess what I'm trying to say is that even though I don't know the spiritual application necessarily of Jesus's commands for me to watch, he says I should watch because I don't know the day or the hour. Um, and therefore, I don't need to know the reasoning. I just need to, to do that. And I know that there's some good reason for it. Now, you, you also, when I was asking about some, some proof text for uh, the Noah thing that they say, oh, watch. Anyway, you, you made the good point, which I did end up including in the film, which is that watch, therefore, because you don't know the day or the hour so that you can be taken, it was those that watched, Jesus's point was watch therefore so that you can be a part of the group that's taken. And you pointed out that the 10 virgins, it's the ones that were watching because uh, right. that, that parable ends with watch therefore because you don't know the day or the hour so that you can be taken, so that you can be a part of the group right. that's taken, not the part and of the not group left, that's left. Yeah, not left or left outside. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I was going to pull up this, uh, this tweet from Amir Tsar, how do you say this, Tsarfati? Safari, uh, I think that's all. He, he had has, this was his take on why it was the concept of why, well, let me just read it. The message of the soon rapture, he's a, he's a pre-tribulational proponent, to say the least. He says, the message of the soon rapture of the church before the rise of the Antichrist and the tribulation is so powerful that it makes not only the non-believers angry, but also the so-called believers. Why? Because it takes away from them the title of martyr and the duty to be ready now. I can't even begin to even parse that or make sense of why that could make sense. The idea that being ready now, in his view, means that he is spiritually, I don't know, ready to be raptured before anything bad happens. How is that in any way useful to anybody? 
as if as if those in our camp are not ready now. Uh, I, it, it's so nonsensical. It just I, I mention it here to show how completely bankrupt the their arguments for why you should believe pre-tribulationalism over pre-wrath. If you right. bre- if you believe pre-wrath, you you know look. If I'm completely completely wrong about this, and I get raptured right now before we finish uh, this sentence or whatever, I'm going to be like, all right. Well, I mean, I got right. nothing to lose. That's just like a really good bonus for me, you know. Uh, so I've got no reason. I, you know, I'm anyway. I guess that was not a great. Well, yeah, it's not. I mean, it sounds. His statement sounds nice and pious, but it's not biblical reality. Again, I just go back to, for example, the instance of Peter. Was not Peter ready? Because he knew he would have to live a long life and be persecuted and martyred at the end of that long life. Uh, was he living, again, was his faith undermined? He was not watching for the Lord. Uh, so, a- again, it sounds nice and pious, and but it's just not biblical reality. Well, Ellen, I guess uh, what I want to do as we sign off here, uh, if you could talk through uh, current projects that you are doing. I know you've got the magazine uh, soon and anything else that you're excited about going on and then just kind of let people know where they can find you. Sure. Uh, well, I was going to mention the, you know, the seven preacherproblems.com. That's the website where you can get additional resources, uh, including if you want a DVD or a flash drive, we, uh, you can purchase those. Uh, but the, the, the documentary is, um, it's, we, we've made it available for free on YouTube. So you can see it for free, but if you want a DVD version or the, or the flash drive, you can, uh, go and to I, the website. I encourage people to do that because, um, you know, obviously censorship is happening. I've seen it on all my channels and stuff like that. So if you want to share it with your church or whatever, and you have the flash drive too, that comes automatically with that DVD, uh, and you can obviously upload that to your, you know, or we'll do whatever you need to do with it, burn your own copies or what have you. Sure, sure. But yeah, as far as the forthcoming projects right now, uh, the, the biblical, it's called uh, Biblical Magazine, uh, or I'm sorry, Biblical Prophecy Magazine. That is the name of the, pro- uh, the, the, the magazine is going to be uh, published uh, about three times a year, and it is going to be published by Eschatos. Uh, ministries at alankirshner.com and we're going to make subscriptions available here in the near future uh, but you can uh, you can sign up to put your address and be alerted to when when the magazine does come out uh, the other project is the this first volume of a, a series that is responding to the Foundations of Pre-Tribulational Theology. I've been working on this uh, forever. And other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm working on getting my, my dissertation published as well and, and a few other projects here and there. So, Great. All right, Alan, thanks for joining us. And uh, you can go to alankirshner.com, Eschatos Ministries. Thanks again. Oh, and check out your book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, for a lot of these kinds of arguments as well. 